When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 32. Being able to, to solve the problems and if you wait until you have a perfect plan, you're never going to get started. And, and so we didn't have a perfect technology, but we rolled it out to customers, got the feedback of what they liked, what they didn't like, and figured out how to improve upon it. Welcome to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everybody. It is Jay Scott here. I am your co host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. And I am here again this week with the woman sitting in the room across the house from me, Mrs. Carol Scott. How are you doing today, Carol? I don't even know what to say about that intro of me, but <laughs> whatever, we'll roll with it. So, uh, yeah, that was outstanding. Thanks. I, I'm, Thanks. I'm so, I'm so I feel out of the love. I feel the love. I'm so out of adjectives for you. Wow. I, again, you really just need to quit while you're ahead. <laughs> anyway, let's see. How am I doing? I'll tell you how I'm doing. It's holiday time. My favorite time of the year makes me very happy. And it is also, as you know, the one time of the year when I actually spend money. But of course, I'm doing the best I can to save money while I'm spending money. So there's that. So let me guess. You're using an app called Fetch Rewards. How did you know? Oh, how was that for a lead-in? Bum, so to- bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. So today on the show, we have the founders of a company called Fetch Rewards, Mr. Wes Schroll and Tyler Kennedy. Fetch Rewards is a company that they started basically back in college. They won a business plan contest around building an app that would allow consumers to get rewarded for being loyal to brands. And so they took their $150,000 in office space and other winnings from this business plan contest. They started their company. And here we are about seven years later. And they are, well, I'm not going to tell you how much they're making, but they're making a whole lot of money. They've raised a whole lot of money. They've created an awesome app with over 100 employees in their company. It's just, it's a great story. And for anybody out there that might be thinking about starting an app or building relationships with big brands, this is the episode to listen to because they've done it all and they've got a lot of great tips for how you can do it too. So before we jump in, a couple quick things. If you want to read our show notes and learn more about this episode and find the links to all the things we discussed in this episode, check out biggerpockets.com slash bizshow32. Again, biggerpockets.com slash bizshow32. Now, without any further ado, let's bring in Wes Schroll and Tyler Kennedy from Fetch Rewards. And let's welcome Wes and Tyler to the show. How are you guys doing today? Good. Doing good. Great. Thank you for having us. Excellent. You guys are in Madison, Wisconsin, I believe. How's the weather up there this afternoon? It's gotten much colder. We uh, woke up to, for me, unexpected snow a good inch or two the other morning and have four to eight coming soon. Whoa. Are you part of that whole big Arctic front thing that just dropped a bomb on everyone out there? Yeah, I think so, unfortunately. I think we always are. I mean, we're living right <laughs> in the middle of it. You never know when it's going to hit. I love it. Well, we are so looking forward to jumping into your story. I downloaded your awesome app today, but I would love to jump back to the beginning. Before we get there, though, let's set some context for our listeners. So, Wes, Tyler, uh, establish some context. What is Fetch Rewards, and what does that business focus on? 
Yeah, so Fetch Rewards, it's a completely free application from a consumer standpoint, the folks who are actually going to be using the application. And it rewards them for buying hundreds of different name brands anywhere that they shop. So think name brands like Kraft, uh, Heinz Ketchup, Dove, Miller Coors, Kimberly Clark. Uh, we represent over 350 of them. And the basic message is if you buy any of these products anywhere, take a picture of the receipt using your phone and you'll instantly get rewarded for doing that. So our goal is really to just drive loyalty to the brands and make it as easy and fun for the consumer as possible. That's really cool. Okay, so there's a whole lot of stuff there. So there's the business model, there's the relationship with the brands, it's the relationship with the retailers, potentially there's the technology, which I, I'd love to dig in a little bit to there. Um, before we dig in and before we go back to like how you guys got started, tell us a little bit just about the the makeup of the company. How many employees do you have? How many customers do you have? How many app downloads? How many people actually upload receipts in a given day or week or month? What does What does that look like? Yeah, so we have about 120 full-time employees um, scattered around uh, different offices. Uh, as far as users go, we are processing close to a million receipts a day. Uh, and that's from a total of 1.6 million, uh, a little over 1.6 million monthly active users. The number changes every week. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to so keep, hard up, to sometimes. keep up, with it sometimes. Wow. So 120 employees, a million receipts. That's okay. So now I'm really curious. Let's go back to the beginning. I want to hear how we got to where you are today. So whose idea was this? Where did the, the, the idea come from? How did you guys kind of incubate the idea? Just kind of give us the story from, from kind of start to how we got to where we are today. Yeah. So Tyler and I actually, I mean, we intersected our journey and our story probably only a couple months into when I had first come up with the original idea. And the original idea had been as simple as I would just moved out of my dorm and into an apartment for the first time ever, meaning I had to go grocery shopping. And, and I, want to, I want to interrupt for yeah. one quick second here because a lot of our listeners aren't watching this. They're actually listening to this. So the person that's talking now is Wes. So I just wanted to, to point that out. That it's, it's Wes that's talking now. Absolutely. Um, so when I first actually had to go out and start doing grocery shopping, it was myself and even later when I met Tyler, we, we would always talk about the fact that we'd go to different stores depending on either what day of the week it was, what transportation we had available, um, how lazy we were feeling if we just wanted a convenience store. And at the end of the day, every single one of them asked you to sign up for a loyalty program. And we always found that interesting because there's nothing specific about any of those retailers that really called for us to give them our loyalty and drive cross town just to go back to that single store unless they were giving us a monetary discount. And yet when we go home and open up the cabinets or the fridge, it's the exact same brands or at least categories that we're buying week in and week out. And we couldn't figure out, well, why aren't those brands actually rewarding me directly? They shouldn't care about where I buy this product. They should just care that I am loyal to Pepsi. Uh, and, you know, let's connect that brand to be able to reach out and communicate to Tyler for the brands that he cares about to West for the brands I care about and really create something that was very dynamic. So that was really where the idea started and uh, started working on a business plan. And Tyler and I then uh, crossed paths in an entrepreneurship uh, school uh, class that we were both taking. I, I have to ask this question. Okay. So you said you were, you had just left your dorm room. You had just moved out of your dorm room. So you were in college when you realized this whole concept of brands needing to buy your loyalty. That is incredibly insightful. You are literally still like a 20-year-old and you figured this out. That's amazing. Well, I think, you know, I was also, it, we're fortunate that at that age, you're doing it for the first time ever. So while people may have had this realization or know it in the back of their mind, it's just the way things have been done for so long. Or, you know, when I talk with my mom, she's like, yeah, that's just the way it always has been. So it's just, we were lucky that we were coming into it very much how a foreigner views a new country that they're traveling in. They'll question things about it and they'll look for new insights. And I think we were very lucky that we just happened to be eager to uh, look for opportunities. And we happened to be looking when we, you know, went on our first couple of shopping trips. Yeah, well, maybe a little bit lucky and fortunate, but you also had some awesome sensibility about you. So kudos to you for just figuring that out. That's really just amazing. So what year was this? It was 2012, well, 2012, 2012 initially. Yeah. And then, and then we met up and started working together in 2013. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, this is really interesting because brands, and I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but for our audience, uh, it's interesting because brands spend a whole lot of money, or at least certain brands spend a whole lot of money 
to get certain product placement in retailers to kind of get their message out. They they build signage. It's not the retailer that's actually providing all of this advertising within the store. It's actually the the brand that provides all this advertising, correct? So what you're doing is you're saying you're telling the brands instead of spending that money on your own advertising and on the retailers, funnel that money to your buyers as opposed to the people selling your product. So it's more of a, a direct line of, of, of reward. And that, I mean, it, it's a reward to your customers as opposed to going through the retailer. Exactly. How, how can you cut out the middleman? And especially that middleman 20 years ago, the retailer looked very different than it started to look over the last 10 years where private label became an increasingly strong competitor to these name brands. So yet these brands would get charged an arm and a leg just for placement in the store, create the stands. Also that a private label product that looks identical could be placed right next to it, but slightly cheaper. So there's this, this natural tension that's been building over the last couple of decades that the, the channels that they had traditionally been using are all of a sudden becoming competitive with the people who own that actual channel. And they need to take back an ownership direct to that customer if they want to survive in the long run. Awesome. Awesome. Such amazing insights. So back in 2012, 13, whatever that year was, you were in college. Um, how did you sync up and what, what did those first steps look like? You realized this need to, to start this business. What was like the physical first step that you did to start bringing it to fruition? Yeah. So it, it started with uh, some planning and Wes being a, a great people person, started connecting with folks in the industry and learning as much as he could. We ultimately ended up um, starting to work together in January of 2013, like I said, and it started in a class. And for that class, we had to write a business plan. Um, But we said, well, there's a business plan competition offered at our university. We went to University of Wisconsin-Madison and we said, well, let's enter in that. And what that effectively meant is we basically had to write the business plan for the class, but in half the amount of time. So we did that. We started working on it. And while we were writing this, we said, well, why don't we see what other competitions we can enter into and just, you know, rinse and repeat and, and just meet the criteria for this. So getting started was, uh, was basically, uh, we, we got our first round of money by entering into about six business plan competitions where we ended up winning um, just about all of them and walked away with uh, about $150,000 worth of office space and cash prizes. And that allowed us to start to uh, actually bring in some developers. When we were winning these, we didn't have a line of code written. It was just telling the story, what we wanted to do. And, um, and so we, read it, we started writing those, brought in some developers, and, and then started raising money and actually building the product. Wow, that's, that's awesome. So what, were your, what was the division of responsibilities back then? So what did Wes work on? What did Tyler work on? How, was, how, how did you guys kind of break up the, the roles? It's, it's actually even still similar today. We've, we've always had it. So when um, we were sitting in a class, we didn't really know each other at that time. And the professor announced that, hey, we're going to do, uh, yeah, everyone needs to write a business plan. I turn over to him. I say, hey, I've been working on something for the last couple months. Do you want to use that? And he said, yeah, sure. Why not? So right away, we just decided, okay, let's, let's start working together. And as Tyler told me his story and his background of how he got up till that point, he was an entrepreneur since from a very young age. He had been uh, running and managing his own yacht detailing company in Milwaukee where he was able to pay for himself to go through school, pay for his car, pay for all his living expenses off of a business he started when he was 14, 15. Um, and, and right away, I said, okay, this is someone who knows how to hustle. This is someone who pays attention to the details and, and, and can handle that. And I'm not good at the, the, the paying attention to the details part. So what we were able to do for a division is let me figure out how to get out there and talk with industry vets and executives, try to put, piece together the strategy and the support that we need. And then Tyler helped me then get the compelling story, the numbers behind it, the actual uh, proof that would need to be in the pudding uh, typically fell on his shoulders. Got it. And so it feels like there are kind of two sides to this business. There's the technology that handles your your customers' input, the, the receipts they send you, the app. And then there's the other side, which is reaching out to the brands to actually get them on board to hand money to your customers. So did you kind of approach both of those simultaneously? How what, what was what were what were the logistics that got you from we have this great business plan, we got $150,000 worth of office space and other stuff to kind of launch the business to actually getting your first customer. What, what was that what was that process looking like? 
Here starts the long and winding road. I'll, I'll give you the kickoff and I'll turn it over to Tyler to tell the rest. But initially, the problem that we face is two college students who don't have a lot of experience in grocery or brands by anyone's judgment didn't have enough credibility to be able to walk into the largest of the large brands like P&G and say, you should work with us. We know how to get to your customer better than you do. Uh, we'd get laughed out of those meetings. We also looked at the technology and the technology wasn't there to be able to create a really seamless user experience for how to reward them. How do you confirm that that customer actually bought Pepsi in that store? Traditionally, they've used bottle caps and on the bottom of bottle caps, you enter in a code and that's the only way you can actually confirm that they purchased it and therefore the brand would reward you. Um, we figured that's that's not a good user experience. So we, we figured how do we, we actually started the, the company with a pivot, with, with a pivot. And we said, how do we actually work with the retailers who own the point of sale system, who own the transaction going through them? If we can find a way to work with those retailers, maybe we can stand up, get our feet underneath us, build enough credibility in the technology. We'll figure out the technology question later. So that introduced ShopFetch, which, yeah. So, so that was actually our first product, which we omitted initially. But ShopFetch was the in-store, um, you know, working with retailers, working with customers, you know, one-on-one, face-to-face. And it, it had its own set of challenges. We figured that we could um, work with smaller grocery stores and like Wes said, build our credibility with that. You don't have to go to the big brands right away. You can start with small grocery stores, build up a user base and, and then start to uh, go larger scale from there. And, and we, we did you know, a couple iterations on the technology and improved the technology, but uh, ultimately ended up um, kind of transitioning over to the the receipt scanning as our mode of rewarding customers and recognizing what people purchased rather than identifying, you know, as they're scanning and, and processing the whole checkout and then the potential security risks, you know, data breaches and credit card breaches and everything. We, we wanted to stay away from that. So made a transition over to the receipt scanning, which is a lot less um, of a security risk for the business and, and transitioned that way. Cool. So, did you say ShopFetch was that original venture? Was that the correct name? Was was the product? Was the product? Um, just out of curiosity, that original business plan that with which you won the six competitions and so on, did it follow more of the model of what ShopFetch became? It was a hybrid, actually. So <laughs> it was, it was a hybrid. We had already okay. strategically realized that the core Fetch Rewards vision that we had, what we do today, where the idea initially came from had this poof magic cloud associated with it. And the poof magic cloud was, how do you go from a customer buying a product in store to then being rewarded? And it was always just, uh, we tie into their credit card or something. We, we never <laughs> really knew how to do that just piece. Will. And, and that's where it introduced, look, the low hanging fruit here is if we work with retailers and we, we slightly make it a little harder for the user to use so they can scan barcodes as they go through the store. But then at least we know what they bought when they check out. And, as Tyler said, if we could get enough small retailers in a geography on board, hey, local brands wanted to start working with us. So we did start working with local brands. And that, again, over the two years, two and a half years that we were working on ShopFetch, gave us the seat at the table with brands where they would take us seriously, where we had interesting data. Um, and then that gave us the chance about three years ago now to sit down and pitch to the largest brands. We want to run a loyalty program. We want to do it in the form of the coalition. And here's why we're the right company to do this. That's really cool. I want to dig into a little bit more, though, three years prior. So you said like three years ago, you're able to go to these larger brands and that type of thing. But I still think there is so much value in exploring even more that first venture that you realized needed to pivot, right? So you, you just mentioned how you, at the beginning, you had just come out of college. You just had this business plan. You didn't know exactly what you were doing. You didn't have a ton of credibility yet, but you still realized that you had to go after these different names. You had to go after the retailers. Do you have any pro tips about doing that? I mean, frankly, you know, plenty of people with lots of experience who've been running businesses for a long time are fearful and have no idea how to even go about getting into those types of, into the meetings to get with the right people. Do you have any pro tips about how you made that happen back in the beginning? I think one thing that that helped us, I mean, you, getting that first sale is obviously the hardest. Everybody says that, right? And for us, I think we were fortunate that there was a retailer in town where, where we lived in Madison who had recently started in the previous five or so years had recently started his grocery store on campus. And so he was, 
he understood the challenges that came with starting a business. And so when we went to um, that retailer with that owner and, and presented the idea of what we wanted to do, I think he was a lot more understanding of, okay, these people want to make something happen. And I think that that's really what got us that start. And from there, uh, we were able to, they allowed us to do different things to test it, to test and, and make sure the systems were ready to launch. We were there overnight, a couple of nights, you know, they'd lock us in the store to make, to, to be able to play around on their, on their cash registers, right? Everything that they used for their business and see if we could hopefully not break the system in order to figure out how to make, you know, make shop fetch work. Uh, and that was really what got our foot in the door um, to be able to launch. Yeah. So if I think if you, cool. if you had to boil it down to what the advice would be, would be don't necessarily go after your dream client right away. Realize that any new idea, new product is going to have a ton of things that need to be worked through. Typically, it's better to lower, lower your initial bar and just find a partner who, who, just, who, who genuinely believes in the vision and you as a person. And they will give you way more flexibility. And with that flexibility, you'll be able to iterate, pivot around, make sure that the product fits. And then you can start generating data off of the app when it's working. Then you can go and talk with anyone and show them it's not a, hey, this is a cool idea. It's, hey, here's what this idea and this product has done for this store. But I would say a lot of people typically go out swinging saying our perfect partner would have been Kroger. And then we go in there, Kroger just sees all the ideas and they can take it and run with it if they want versus just go find a local single store independent owner and, you know, just work through the problems, work through the kinks and then expand. Yeah. And there's so many, uh, I think you, you hit on this big thing that's, that's so important when it comes to, to entrepreneurs and, and people that want to start businesses. Too often we go out and we say, we need, we need all the stars to align before we're going to take that first step. And you said earlier that there was this whole part of your business, this whole magic cloud part of your business that you didn't know how you were going to actually collect this data from the customer. Uh, but that didn't stop you from taking the first step. And you realize this is an iterative process and we can take that first step and we can try different things and we'll eventually get there. And same with your with your uh, with the brands. We can start with the smaller brands and we'll figure out how to build. Basically, the the whole idea of iteration and pivoting and just keep making steps forward in the right direction, you'll eventually get there as opposed to waiting until you have everything lined up, all the stars aligned before you ever take that first step. So that's, yeah, that's do it in small bite-sized pieces, right? As, as you were saying, it's a, you shouldn't failure early on, especially in small little ways is really good and healthy. I mean, one of the things when I talk with entrepreneurs that they always are afraid to do is go out there and look at competition. If it's a good idea, chances are someone's already doing it or something similar to it. That's not a bad thing. That actually just tells you that you're onto something. The fact that you hadn't heard about it means that there's an opportunity. So go look at those things. It's painful, but swallow, you know, the pill of pride and be able to just say, okay, what are they doing? What's working? What's not working? How could I do this better? Why would it be better for whoever the end consumer is? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the cliche that we always talk about in business. If, if you wait to get in your car, if you don't get in your car until all the lights are green between where you're starting and where you're going, you're never going to leave your house. Yep. So you, you have to be willing to, to get in and just start driving. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So now we've actually, we've pivoted a couple of times. We've figured out kind of what that magic cloud's going to be, the scanning of the receipts. What were the steps to actually get this app built in the hands of consumers? And what challenges did you have with your brands? Um, was there any pushback from retailers? Were there, were there any major, like, did you have to, to overcome any prod, uh, major issues on the brand and retailer side? Definitely. So we, uh, as we were getting started with, with ShopFetch, I mean, we, we started out partnering with local brands and then we started working with some distributors and somewhere along the way we got connected with uh, Kraft Heinz and they have an innovation team at corporate and we were working with them. And that's really where we started to hone in a little bit more on the receipt scanning side of it and, and looping in multiple brands and, and really build it um, larger than just a more localized product. and. As we started to do that and, and look into receipt scanning, there were different technologies that we had to pull together, some that we built, some that we purchased, and kind of went down that buy versus build decision process uh, with a variety of those. And so ultimately came up with receipt scanning uh, as, as the, the method of doing it. But that is not 
easy. If you think about receipts and the receipts you get from stores, and I'm getting a little tactical here, but the receipts that you get from stores, they're crinkled, they're faded. Sometimes you spill on them. The descriptions on them oftentimes can't be read by anybody. And so understanding from that, what the customer actually purchased in order to be able to reward them is definitely a challenge. And it's something that we've been you know, working on improving and perfecting over the last three years and still have you know, a ways to go on that. But it, that comes back to the point earlier that was made is being able to, to solve the problems. And if you wait until you have a perfect plan, you're never going to get started. And, and so we didn't have a perfect technology, but we rolled it out to customers got the feedback of what they liked, what they didn't like, and figured out how to improve upon it. You'll see that when you download the app and, and you scan a receipt, we know that it's not perfect. We know that some merchants uh, don't have a, a perfect description of exactly what size product and flavor product you purchased, uh, but we allow all of our users to correct their uh, receipt after they scan it in case the system missed something, in case it was too faded, things that are inevitably going to be problems. So we didn't know that that was going to be a solution that we had to come up with when we um, launched the Fetch Rewards app with the receipt scanning, uh, but eventually had to, to go down that path to, to solve that problem. And did you find that that actually made your app a little stickier? So you, you have people that are now forced to interact with you because they're, they're instead of just scanning the receipt and going on about their day, they're going to scan the receipt. They're going to look and make sure everything's correct. They're actually spending more time looking at your app. They see something that's wrong. They go in, they fix it. They're spending more time with your app. And, yeah. and so they're, they're actually, I mean, you're, you're creating brand recognition there because they're being forced to interact with you more than just doing a quick snapshot and move on with their day. I think we'd certainly rather it be right the first time <laughs> <laughs> I've, always, I've always been more amazed that our, you know, it just speaks to the, the testament to how much people really like the product and the rewards that they're able to get, that they're willing to go through that extra work. I hate it. I feel terrible every time I see a report of how they have to be corrected. And I'd rather reinforce it with a better positive experience. But at the end of the day, as you said, I think it just it speaks volumes to obviously the level that they want to engage with the app and with the brands. Um, so I think that's definitely important. Awesome. So you're talking about um, the customers who downloaded the app back in the beginning. So over the first, whatever the metric is, over the first six months or year or whatever, how many people had downloaded that app kind of right away? And how did you market it to people and get them uh, get them to sign up? Yeah, so we are almost done with the third full year of, of Fetch Rewards. Um, at the end of year one, we ramped up to 100,000 uh, monthly active users. Uh, year one. Yeah, in year one. Uh, so Great. from January to December. Year two, we ended at about 400,000, 416,000, I think, monthly active users. And, and now, of course, we're at uh, 1.6, 1.7 million. So how, how do you, how do you get those numbers? I mean, those are huge numbers and not only are they huge numbers, but it's grown so exponentially. So what's some of the marketing that you've used to get it in people's hands? I think one of the things that we're most excited about is similar to just the level of engagement that we have with consumers that they're willing to go and correct a receipt. They want to go and actually tell people about it. Um, if you look at our entire user base out of the 4 million plus downloads, over 50% of them have come by users telling other users about it. So we have a very successful referral program. Uh, we, we try to pride ourselves on making it as easy as possible and as fun as possible for the customers. If you do those two things right, people will want to talk about it. And at the end of the day, that's what we focus on. And I think just the results is, is it results in a high growth rate. Um, we also have our brands helping us. Um, funny story, when we first launched, since you were asking about how we got users on board, we started with just people in the office and then we started by telling other you know friends and family and all of a sudden, we're getting 20 receipts a day. And, you know, at that point, the the receipt reading wasn't very good. So, you know, that's 20 receipts we had to go in there and manually make sure we're doing well. And then, uh, you know, later that month, we invited a couple other partner companies. They started using it. Our brand started using it. Um, and then, like, on month two, we said, Kraft Heinz, can you deliver some users for us? And they sent out a single email to a set of their CRM that they have. And all of a sudden, we had 10,000 user sign-ups. And we wow. had a couple hundred receipts a day coming in and we completely fell over. We had no idea how to handle that velocity and volume. And we were down for five weeks, I think, yeah. where we were trying to process receipts. And I think that our backlog got up to 42,000 and yep. we were manually going through and just staring at them every night, just trying to get as many done as we could. And we could just never imagine how we would unbury ourselves from 40,000. But 
we were working on the technology at the same time and we didn't try to just solve the problem with throwing humans at it, but we also then found a technical solution. And then all of a sudden we were able to have something that could do it, do it at a high caliber and a class that we want, where we can now, as Tyler was saying, process almost a million a day and not have any issues or hiccups from a customer perspective. Awesome. Before we move on to the next part of our show, let's hear from one of our show sponsors. Real estate investing is known for a lot of things, mainly making a very select group of people a whole lot of money. But being an online cutting edge experience is usually not one of those hallmarks. Well, thanks to Fundrise, that's no longer the case. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. Their revolutionary model is transforming the industry thanks to their software, which cuts out the costly middlemen and removes old market inefficiencies. Fundrise delivers the kind of investing power you typically only see at the big institutions and can now bring real estate's unique potential for long-term growth and cash flow to individual investors like us. Getting started is simple and usually takes less than five minutes. When you invest with Fundrise, you'll be instantly diversified across dozens of real estate projects, each one carefully vetted and actively managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. Then you can use their intuitive investor dashboard and real-time reporting system to monitor the progress of each property in your portfolio. Now that's the future of real estate investing. So are you ready to get started? Then visit Fundrise.com slash business. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash BP business. And you'll get the first three months of fees waived. Again, that's fundrise.com slash BP business. Believe it or not, the world isn't built for entrepreneurs and small business owners like us. Sometimes it seems like there's no end to the hurdles we face while starting, maintaining, and growing our businesses. Finding smart tools to make running your business easier is crucial, which is why I'm here to tell you all about FreshBooks. FreshBooks is accounting software specifically designed for small businesses. It organizes and streamlines time-consuming bookkeeping and accounting tasks, allowing you to do things like create and send branded invoices in just 30 seconds, set up credit card payments right on your invoices to get paid twice as fast, and export tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with your accountant to tax time a breeze. FreshBooks customers say they save an average of 192 hours a year. Imagine what you could do with that extra time. Right now, we're offering our listeners a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks, no credit card required. So just go to freshbooks.com and enter Bigger Pockets Business in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Again, go to freshbooks.com and enter Bigger Pockets Business in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So can you walk us through as, let's say I'm a customer, I use the app, I scan a receipt. How am I getting rewards? What kind of rewards am I getting? And then um, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be really interested in knowing how are you guys making money every time somebody scans a receipt or every time something happens? Sure. First part. Yeah, I'll take the, the user experience. So from a, a user's perspective, you sign up, you download the app, and the first screen you see after signing in and signing up is uh, basically the list of rewards. And there's two ways to earn points and, and earn, those, uh, earn those points. First is uh, a list of brands. We have over 200 brands that every time you buy those brands and you buy those products, you get points. You get a percentage back basically on, on the amount that you spent on those. The second way then is special offers. Um, people think of them as coupons. We call them special offers. Same concept. Uh, but every time then you, if you buy a, a product that a special offer is available for, you get a bonus number of and those are the uh, two primary ways of earning points. Wes also alluded to the uh, referral program that we have. If you refer somebody else, then you can earn uh, additional points. So once you, um, in order to, to earn those, when you buy the products, you get your receipt and we have a, a scanning solution and it has different guides on there to try and help you take a good photo so that you know, we can be as successful as possible. You take the photo, if you have a really long receipt, you can uh, take multiple photos and it'll stitch them together and identify you know, what was, uh, how many items of each were purchased. And we'll process it in just about five seconds or so and tell you what products you were purchased, digitize the receipt, and award the points all in that uh, time frame for what you purchased. So from a user's perspective, that's the general workflow that they go through most of the time. Now, 
we have different rewards redemption levels. So you can redeem with as little as 3,000 points for a $3 gift card. Uh, and we have gift cards available for Walmart, Amazon, um, over 100 merchants that you can redeem your gift cards for from $3 up to $50. And you can also redeem for sweepstakes to try and get, uh, you know, for 10 points or 50 points, you can redeem for uh, a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card or a $500 Visa gift card sometimes. So uh, that's the, the high level workflow, like process flow that a, a customer would go through using the app. Cool. cool. And then how to, so that we know how the, I think you've explained really well how the customers get rewarded. How does your company pull in revenue from those retailers, from those brands? Yeah. So then it, what I really love about our business model is it's actually directly tied to the same incentives that we give our customers. So we're completely aligned and our brands are aligned. The, the basic premise is we want customers to, we understand that it's not always plausible for a customer to just spend more money. You know, they, they have only a certain amount that they can spend on food, um, but we want them to make sure within categories that we have a brand that they're already spending, say, $10 a month in. Let's make sure that $10 is spent on our brand versus the other one. And in return, we'll give you a bunch of points as a thank you for doing that. So for our user, they tell us a lot of the times it helps them simplify down choices. They walk into the barbecue aisle and there's 75 different barbecue sauces. We now narrow it down. So, hey, these are the 10 that will reward you no matter where you buy it, no matter when you buy guaranteed. And a lot of customers like that. They don't have to worry about shopping around for price. They can just say, okay, well, if I give my loyalty, I'm going to be act actively rewarded for it. Hey, there's some brands, maybe, maybe I'll never switch off. Maybe I am a Coke diehard. I'll never switch over to Pepsi, even though Pepsi is being rewarded on Fetch. But then maybe you do switch over to all the Frito-Lay products and start buying Frito-Lay products because you get rewarded and PepsiCo loves that. So at the end of the day, we then essentially have a markup when customers are buying more of their products. So the brands are happy with that because they're only paying when people are buying more. Customers like it because just by shifting their spend to brands in categories that they may have been flip-floppers on, they're going to maximize the savings that they can get. And then Fetch gets the direct reward too by sitting in the middle of it. So, yeah. Cool. So, so you said something interesting. So you said they may walk down the barbecue aisle where there's 75 barbecue sauces and they may get rewarded for buying 10 of them. So what is your relationship with the 10 barbecue brands? Is there one brand that's saying, I don't want you to reward nine other of my competitors or are they all kind of in the same boat and they say, no, we understand you guys have a business model. What's, what's your relationship with your brands there? And, and do you ever have to be careful about exclusivity or, or just uh, upsetting a brand because you're working with a competitor? So it's a little of both. We, we do give them, we basically target the top one or two brands in any given category and we'll go and partner with them and we do give them exclusivity. So we have Miller Coors on board. We don't have Budweiser on board. We have Pepsi on board. We don't have Coke. Um, and what that allows them to do, though, is, uh, again, be able to truly be the partner in that space that, uh, that will reward the customers. The other thing is we partner at a CPG level, consumer packaged goods, so the parent company. So Kraft Heinz might be our partner, and they may represent 10 different barbecue sauces, all under different brand names. But now from a customer's perspective, they don't really care who owns it. They just know that these are the 10 that will reward me. That makes sense. Really cool. Really cool. It sounds like so much of this is very data heavy, right? So do you just, I, it sounds like just from, just from analyzing all the brands, analyzing consumer loyalty within the brands that I would suspect that your, your business is so heavily data driven. What are your kind of best practices around analyzing that data? Do you, I mean, do you have a team that specifically does it? Is it one of you? Do you just, just how dependent is your company on data and how do you approach it? Do I handle this one first one? Uh, sure. Uh, and fill in the gaps. So basically, yeah, we have we have a team that looks at data and tries to understand, you know, are customers buying more of the, the brand, as Wes was saying, if somebody switched from, from Coke to Pepsi, then, uh, you know, we're, we're keeping eyes on that to know how successful the program is in that regard. Um, so we have a team that reports that works directly with each of our clients to understand what their goals are and make sure that our strategy in um, you know representing the brands in the right light to, to get the right target customers is is aligned and that we're um, approaching it the right way with the right special offers. And so that's one interesting thing. It, you were talking earlier about how a lot of brands 
pay the retailers for um, pay the retailers for shelf space and things like that, and and offer discounts in in, in mass across the whole customer portfolio. And the same thing with digital, or I'm sorry, with paper coupons is it's not very smart about, well, if this person was buying it anyways, we have the opportunity to recognize that, hey, Carol's always buying uh, Pepsi and, and she never switches from Pepsi. She doesn't need any additional incentive to do so. And so we try and make sure that we're smart about how we're offering rewards to different users. Yeah. So maybe in that case, you just get a little thank you, uh, a little boost every 10th you know, two liter that you're buying, whatever the case is. And at the end of the day, we, we believe it's important to be a data-driven organization. We think that everything can be anonymized though. So in those cases, we'll never necessarily know who the exact customer is that's getting this offer, but we just know, hey, these are their behaviors and therefore we think this is relevant to them. So we always try to play that matchmaker. I think it's fine for us to obfuscate who that customer is. And then internally, we use data heavily to determine what new features do we roll out, which features are working, how are customers flowing through the application. Um, so we try to use data to help bring a lens of understanding to the why behind people using it and the what that they're actually doing. Right. One area that I focus in is looking at potential issues. We look at our you know, user acquisition trends and try and understand and slice the data in different ways to see where are potential opportunities where maybe there's a weakness in the user onboarding or um, maybe there's a particular week in the month where, user, where people aren't scanning as many receipts. And so we'll dig into that and try and understand, is it for a particular set of retailers? Is it for a particular type of user? Maybe they're it, the person who only shops at convenience stores maybe is suddenly not scanning in a given week. Why is that? Is there something that we can do to try and provide more value to those people? We want to make sure we're very much a, a customer first business and want to make sure that we understand uh, what people want and what people find valuable in the app and make sure that we do the best we can to deliver that as efficiently as we can. And so that's where the data really comes into play is, is understanding our users, what their needs are, whether they know those or not. Uh, it's evident in how much they're using the application and then make sure that we deliver the value, which obviously then is, is shown in uh, how often people are, are using it. That's awesome. Okay. So I want to take a, a I, I want to kind of step back and I want to look at the company a little bit more because um, you mentioned earlier that you have 120 employees across three offices, um, which is mind boggling. Um, I know a lot of people are sitting there thinking, well, they have an app. Why do they need 120 people? It's all automated. So uh, can let's, let's, Talk about this a little bit. So of those 120 people, three offices across the country, what, what, what's the breakdown of responsibilities for those employees? What do you do differently at different offices? What does your, your company look like from, a, from an organizational structure? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and talk a little bit about the, um, the technology side, the data side, since we were just talking about that. On the, the data side, you know, we have uh, about a handful of people who are focused on our user-focused data. And what I mean by that is, how is the app performing in the eyes of a customer, of a, of a shopper, and, and identifying ways to continually improve that. And so we have um, a handful of people who are looking at the data, but then maybe five or six times that um, number of people who are identifying what the actual improvements to the product are and implementing those product improvements to try and optimize the system. Um, so that, that probably in total comes out to be about 25 or 30 uh, people focused on just product focus improvements. Uh, and then we have customer service. Like I said, we're, we're a customer, customer first company through and through from the day we started trying to make things easy, easy and fun. People like easy and fun. And so our customer support team, if you email our support team, we have about 25 people who are uh, responding to emails and then another uh, about 40 people who are reviewing any of those changes that our users make to the receipts, if they have any updates. We have uh, quite a few people looking at that to make sure that they're accurate and see if anything was missed, those types of things. And on the, the client-facing side, then... Yeah, you have your typical client um, support that we provide to make sure that the brands are represented well and have their questions answered. Typical finance marketing team as well, who's driving a lot of the growth of brand identity. Um, and yeah, we're, we're across Madison, Chicago, um, New York, and actually just opening up San Francisco right now. 
we like having multiple offices because it gives us more access to talent. Um, we believe that every office should have all functions there represented so that we're fully distributed and no team is centrally located in only one location. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of people are in between the Chicago and Madison office. That also puts us because we started here in Madison. So that's logical. And then Chicago is a, a, a good place for us to expand because it's very close to our partners like Kraft Heinz, Miller Coors, Kimberly Clark's up here. So it's nice to be centrally located. Okay. So you, if my math is correct, of your 120 employees, it sounds like you've got about a quarter of them are engineering operations. About a quarter of them are focused on your clients, your brands, and probably management. And then about half your company is customer focused. And so that to me says a lot about your company. So can you tell us a little bit about your corporate culture and and how that that whole attitude of customer first, and you've actually used the, the term customer first a couple times. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your corporate culture and how that's kind of infused throughout your culture? Yeah, one of the things that um, we're actually, we're just working as a leadership team yesterday to kind of crystallize these in a set of principles um, that we as a leadership team stand for and therefore the rest of the company does too. You can tell that it's a very customer-centric mindset where the very first one is if, it's, uh, if it makes it easier for the user or if it's better for the user and hard on us, do it. Um, so it, it, we, we like to try to remove as many of those hurdles as we can. We like internally, we want to challenge ideas and not people. So we believe that's really important to be a team that understands that your team is made up of other people and you have to appreciate that and know the... Um, that people are complex and have a lot of things going on. You can fully disagree with an idea, and we actively encourage that sort of disagreement. We want people arguing over what they think the customer wants more. That's a really healthy debate, but as long as you're not challenging the actual individual, we think that that's really healthy. In general, we just try to also make sure that we stay very connected and transparent. So we do company updates with the entire staff there where we'll share. You can ask almost, you can ask basically any question you want and we will do our best to answer it. We try to push information out so everyone in the staff knows what's going on, the good and the bad, um, is we think if we have an entire village working on things, especially when it's bad, then we'll get a better solution and get one faster. I was going to say, I think a lot of people on the team are coming together, right? It's, it's, I think that, that those statements that Wes was making, uh, uh, kind of representing our culture, when you put it down on paper, are, are come to life in a variety of ways. I mean, we have just two examples off the top of my head. We have the support team, for example, has a, a potluck. Pretty rarely, at least once a month, they just get together, bring stuff in and, you know, share, converse, have a good time and, you know, get back to it, helping people. Uh, we have a run club. This morning, a couple of us went and ran uh, up and down a hill in Madison in 32 degree weather. Which there's only one up, by the way. There's not many hills out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, run club. And, and so the team really comes together and, and it's about basically being one and, and figuring out what's best for, uh, for the team and for the user. Very cool. Well, and it, I think it really shines through. Like when you download the app, it's very clear, just like you're talking about, you create this culture of fun. You create this culture of easy. You create this, you create this culture of just what's best for everybody. The app shows that too. The app feels very fun. The app is just, it's just, you can tell that your corporate culture uh, has that ingrained in it to be able to produce that on the outside. And then, so I, I'm wondering, you're talking more about all these ideas, all these collaboration, all this teamwork, how people are encouraged to have a healthy debate. What is your whole take on engaging and empowering employees? It sounds like from a leadership perspective, that's a really a big focus of yours. Is that accurate? I'd say it's an even bigger focus of ours, especially as we close our most recent round of funding, which has allowed us to really accelerate growth, not only on the user side, but on the company side. So we're going to go from 120 people to well over 200 by the end of next year. And, and we think um, culture is something very organic. It changes, it grows, it needs to be nurtured. It's a living thing within a company. And as long as we're very clear on some of the stances that we have of how we want people to be treated, how people should be treated equally, should always feel safe and comfortable in their environment to have their voices heard, if we hire people who think like that, then that will percolate. They'll hire more people who think like that, and it kind of grows um, from there. So 
one of the other things. So like, even with culture, we try to empower people to influence culture. And it's the exact same way that we're pivoting or moving the company more and more too, which is just empower the teams to make the decisions. They don't need a sign off. They don't need either of us involved. If they have a hunch, go tackle it down. Go do what you think is right for the consumer. Come back to us and say, hey, this works, this didn't. Uh, and just be honest with yourself of what works and what doesn't. But if we have a collective group who's all going out there finding problems and solving the problems, that's going to be what allows us to move as fast as possible. Wow. I absolutely love that. Okay. A couple more questions before we get into the final segment. I want to touch a little bit more. You just mentioned raising money. So I want to talk a little bit about how you guys have grown. You're up to 120 people. You mentioned you're going to hit over 200. Uh, I'm sure a lot of that is organic and you've obviously done a great job growing the company, but I also imagine, and it sounds like you've taken some outside funding as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your, your, your funding sources have been and, and how you've grown kind of inorganically through, through outside funding? Yeah, at a high level, we've raised almost $50 million to date across the six years of the business. When we started the company, as Tyler was saying, we were um, very scrappy where we were earning a lot of that ourselves through competitions and the creative ways that we were able to find the students that were available to us to get our feet off the ground. I think that was really important because that allowed us to get the business further on our own before we had to take a bunch of dilution. The, the later you can postpone raising to with the more progress you have an actual product and a team, the better off you're going to be because it's less theoretical and vision based and more actual results. Uh, and people then will trust you more, um, especially if you put some of your own capital on the line. So early on, we did that ourselves. We were able to deploy that, get a product up and running. We then found angel investors locally who um, came in and were putting in seed checks into the business. Um, then we actually attracted uh, the attention of Great Oaks Venture Capital, um, which is a group, a VC group out of New York, who primarily just plays in seed stage companies. So came in at the same stage of a lot of the angels, but came with deeper pockets, which is something that's obviously important. And, and then that allowed us to continue accelerating. That got us through to basically shop fetch and what we were doing on that. And then we were able to, as we were continuing to pivot the business and showing that hey, a lot of the barriers that had held back shop fetch, which was slow growth because you had to partner with retailers, it was a three-legged stool versus a two-legged. We were able to come in and say, hey, here's how we're solving all those major problems that were holding us back. And then that att attracted the attention of Graycroft and eVentures, um, two amazing blue class, uh, blue chip funds that came in and led our Series A and then just closed our Series B funding. Again, money honestly gets easier to raise the further you go along because it's less, it's more about just numbers and performance. And, and if you have success and you're showing a great track record, that's a lot easier. But definitely early on, we had to, we had to get scrappy and we had to just prove ourselves time and time again. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the, one of the little talked about secrets of raising money, especially in, in the venture world is that uh, nobody likes to be the first to go. So it's uh, everybody wants everybody else to do the due diligence. And as soon as one person kind of invests money, it's like, Oh, they've been, <laughs> yeah, they've, they've been endorsed. I, I, I trust them. I'm sure they've done the math so that everybody comes on. So it, it sounds like you guys have got the, that momentum going. Um, I know because you have investors, you're a private company, you can't talk a whole lot about your, your revenue and your financials and your margins, but what can you tell us in terms of, of maybe just general idea of what your top line looks like, what your margins look like, whatever you're comfortable talking about. Yeah, high level since um, Inc. 5000 did a uh, piece on us and published some of the revenue numbers. We were the fastest growing technology uh, company in the U.S. this past year, uh, wow. number 61 on the 67. list, 67 on the list. That's awesome. Which is great. But um, in 2017, we did about two, uh, just, uh, just over $2 million in revenue. Uh, in 2018, that number was just shy of 10 million, and this year it's over 20. Um, so we and, and um, so it was a four four x four x two x, and we're going to continue on a uh, we think even slightly higher than a two x rate going into next year. That's a good year. That's a really good year. That's awesome. So we have a lot of getting started entrepreneurs in our in our audience, uh, some people that are running small businesses and are looking to grow. What kind of tips do you have based on your experience? What would you have done differently if you were starting over? Uh, what are just some some tips that you can give our listeners and, and just things you've learned over the years? Go first. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, we've talked about a, a couple of things, but I think that it's important to, to highlight is, you know, have a plan, but don't have the whole, you don't have to have the whole plan and every step along the way figured out. Uh, and that's where really one key lesson comes in, which is be a problem solver. What Wes kind of described uh, his role versus my role, and, and he's kind of the ideas guy, and I figure out how to actually make it happen in, in the business. Um, and so that, that comes in with, uh, you know, obviously new ideas don't have plans. And so figuring that out, solving the problems, and um, when people's receipts aren't being processed accurately, you have to kind of change how the technology works and allow them to correct their own receipt. Um, so figuring out how to solve problems and, and solve problems elegantly, I think, is, is a big piece. And um, the other thing that I think came out of uh, Wes's description of his role versus my role is talking with people. I mean, don't be afraid of, of rejection. Um, many people want to help you, especially if you can find that almost mentor who wants to, uh, who, who sees the value and sees the drive, uh, as we found in, in our first grocery store partner. Um, find somebody, ask them questions, ask them dumb questions. They might not be dumb. They might be problems that that business is currently facing and then you uncover a new opportunity. Uh, so I think reaching out to people that you, uh, that are in your network, but also outside of your network in the business that you're trying to break into in the, in the, um, category that you're trying to break into, ask them questions and, and hopefully, you know, maybe they'll give you a couple of minutes of their time to answer any of those questions and kind of guide you in the right direction. So definitely people and, and problem solving are two big things that go a long way in, in starting any business, I would say. And I, I think for me, it would be plan for adversity. Um, a, a path to a startup is going to be a winding road that's going to have all kinds of turns here and there. And I think it's really important that you'll have days and hours in a day even that you feel high and on top of the world because, hey, someone just called and gave you good news and you've been dying for good news. And then very next hour, the app falls over and nothing's working. And you're going to go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. You're going to want to, you know, say that this is a billion dollar company just to all the way down to we're going out of business. And it's important to just know that that's okay. That's natural. You're going to have those emotional swings, but try to find a way to keep yourself steady. If that's through exercise, if that's through sharing the experience with a co-founder, um, find ways to level yourself out um, because that's what's going to make it so you can be persistent, that you can get through it and continue to just focus on growth. And you sometimes have to zoom out to see the growth, but again, find ways to, to, to mitigate the ups and downs that you go through. Okay. This has been fantastic, but we are getting to that point in the show where we're going to jump into our final segment, the four more, where we ask you four rapid fire questions, and then we jump into the more. You guys ready for the uh, the questions? Let's do it. Fantastic. I'm going to take the first one. So I'll let each of you answer this. What was your first or your worst job, and what lessons did you learn from it? I'll, I'll start. Um, my first job was mowing lawns. Um, and that was a great start. Uh, you know, kind of that entrepreneurial step one, I guess. Um, but you know, there just wasn't a ton of opportunity to grow there. I'd say that, uh, you know, one of the bigger challenges, uh, it was in my next job with, where I was a cart boy at target, uh, pushing carts from the parking lot back inside. And, you know, I think it was, um, I'll, I'll describe it. I think target's a, a great place to work, but you know, it's just uh, for me having kind of that entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit. You know, doesn't allow quite as much freedom to figure things out and grow and and kind of do it at your own pace. Similar on that side, I think I'd started with a bunch of one-off little ventures of washing cars and uh, collecting golf balls and all kinds of weird things. Um, my first one that I can remember that I was working for someone else was. Um, working at a basketball clinic for uh, young kids. Um, so I think I was in high school and we were working mostly with grade school kids. I absolutely loved the chance to work with and mentor uh, individuals, watch them get better over a time period and, and do that coaching. That part uh, meant a lot to me and I still try to find aspects of that and what I do day in and day out today. Um, the schedule sucked. I mean, it's definitely like you were there and you had to go from the very beginning and be on and ready and have energy for the kids and be able to handle all of their nonsense of little, little sugar balls <laughs> running around. So that was definitely something that was more draining, I think. 
<laughs> they could take a big old nap after. Yeah, exactly. And you're just like, done. That's awesome. Okay, so you mentioned a few uh, little adventures that you had along the way growing up and so on and so forth. But I'm curious to know from each of you, what is that one specific defining moment when you just knew you were going to you're going to be an entrepreneur for life. You just had the entrepreneurial itch and that was your path. Uh, I, I'd say for me, uh, Wes mentioned um, a little bit of my background prior to us meeting. I started a, a boat cleaning business um, in Milwaukee and had uh, four people working for me and, and started to build that up to the point where when I sold it, um, had, like I said, four people working for me. We were working on about 30 to 40 boats a week, depending on the week. And so it was, uh, that just inspired me. Um, and I come, like my family wanted me to, you know, go to professional school and be a doctor or something. And I was down there, I was like, but I like this boat and, and he owns a business. So <laughs> I think it would kind of reinforce the whole concept. I like boats and uh, a lot of them own businesses. <laughs> um, mine was back in fourth grade. My brother, who's two years older than me, is much more creative and uh, skillful than I am at, at, at doing things with his hands. And he had created, we'd gotten two $2 bills from the bank. Uh, and, and my brother had created them into a wallet using see-through tape oh, cool. and kind of put them together so you could open it up and put your actual money in between. And he gave it to me and I uh, later sold it on the bus for $26 to uh, another kid. <laughs> what? And I was hooked right there that, oh my gosh, you can take something that's worth $4, put some sort of unique spin on it. And all of a sudden it's going to be worth 26. And uh, the unfortunate <laughs> part awesome. of that is the school did is send me home that day. They were not happy with me for apparently ripping the person off. But uh, I thought it was a valuable learning experience. Only time I've ever been sent home from school. <laughs> and you know what? If our kids would have been sent home from school, it would have been like, yes, go back and do it again tomorrow. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Totally, yes. Awesome. Okay, question number three. There is a lot of bad advice that floats around in the business world and the entrepreneur world. What's some of the worst advice you guys have heard? And how would you turn that into better advice? I hate when people talk about work-life balance. I do not believe in work-life balance whatsoever, especially if you're an entrepreneur. It is all your life and you have to figure out how to work it together. There's no concept of, well, I need to be off on weekends so I can recharge. It's like, you're not going to ever want to recharge. You're going to need your phone on you. Uh, you be just checking those emails and falling behind isn't an option. And you just have to be okay with that and surround yourself with people who understand the commitment that you have to um, wanting to be successful with your business and will be supportive of that. But don't, don't fall into the needing to meditate or do all these little one-off things that people swear by is that's the one thing you need to do. It's no, I just think you can figure out how to make your work and your life come together into one thing where you treat it all as your life and do things that make you happy and that you are happy spending your hours on this earth doing, and you'll be a heck of a lot happier than trying to make some sort of false distinction. I, I agree with that. And I think I'll add that making your work uh, something that you enjoy doing and, and surrounding yourself with people who inspire you and, and bring you joy at your work, I think is, is key as well. Um, if you do that, then it doesn't, it isn't as stressful. Yeah, you'll have the ups and downs, but you'll have somebody else uh, to kind of buffer those. And I think making work um, a place of pride and enjoyment, I think, is, is key to that. Awesome. Okay, here's the fourth question, which is always my favorite. What is something in either your personal or professional lives that you've splurged on along the way? You've just spent way too much money on it, but it was totally worth my it. My Great Dane. <laughs> oh, I love that. What's your Great Dane's His name? His name is Picasso. He is white and black like a spotted cow. And he looks like a cow. He has two different colored eyes, a brown and a blue one, and uh, nothing matched on him. So I thought Picasso was a very fitting name. But yeah, yeah he was way too expensive. I shouldn't have done it, but I love him to death. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's totally worth it. And then some. Yeah. I, and uh, his name is Pico for short, uh, which is obviously in contrast to the Great Dane. <laughs> <laughs> How and about you, Tyler? What about you? Uh, shoot, I'm... Um, Gosh, I try, conservative and, I try and be so frugal. Yeah. <laughs> I bought some cheese curds the other day. Probably need, but. Like that was a big day. Yeah, and, yeah, I got, and I got 2,000 points when I bought them. It was great all the way around. I do. That looks, that looks hard for me because I, I do try and be frugal. I mean, you know, I guess sometimes uh, 
you don't need a new phone, but you upgrade it and you justify it because you uh, work for a tech company. But well, you and your wife do vacations. We, yeah, I do like to to go on uh, you know a road trip. My wife and I argue because not argue, but uh, we we come we've come to an agreement that we do one uh, sit on the beach vacation a year and one more adventurous vacation a year. Uh, so from you know going out and touring some national parks, that's uh, what we've done, and uh, otherwise going in and just sitting on the beach and relaxing for a little while. We just got back from actually our honeymoon in Hawaii, and that was a great time. Oh, time congratulations! It is. Awesome. It is. It's, it's time splurging, less than money splurging. That that there you we go. hear that a lot. That's awesome. Okay, so now that brings us to the more part of the four more. Can you tell our listeners a little bit? more about where they can find out about your company, where they can download your app, where they can connect with you, and anything else you want to talk about. Sure. The app, you can learn more at FetchRewards.com or download it from the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. My name is Fetch Rewards. As far as learning more about myself, happy to connect on LinkedIn or shoot me a message there. Also, Instagram, both of our uh, accounts are, are public, the underscore Tyler underscore Kennedy. And mine's at Westroll, I think. Yeah, simple. Awesome. Guys, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. Love the story, love the app, love the business. And I look forward to having you back in a couple of years to get an update and hear about all the new awesome stuff that's going on. But thank you so much. Sounds great. Yeah, thank thank you. you guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Yep. Bye. What a great story. So they won a business plan contest. Well, six of them. They won like six of them. That's they what's amazing. Six of them, okay, six so of them guess, in college. In college. So I, I guess if you've won six business plan con- contests, it's competitions. less competitions. It's, <laughs> it, it's less impressive that you now have a $20 million company. Whatever. Uh, Just st- everything about them, right? Are you kidding me? They started this in college for crying out loud. And now, and now their app is down, is is scanning what a million receipts a day? Like what is what? What is that? That's crazy. How many of those are going to be yours? <laughs> I don't think you want to know. Anyway, <laughs> they're incredible. They just they just made it happen. They grew. They were smart about it. They pivoted. They took they took customer feedback. They were just unabashed and in going into these big companies and just doing what they needed to do. And now they've got an awesome company where they empower employees, and that's just a beautiful thing all the way yep. around. Way cool. Yep. Yeah. My favorite takeaway from that is you don't need to have all the answers to get started. Right? Just start, ta- start taking action and figure it out as you go along. That's super. Excellent. Okay. Are we done here? We are so done. Okay. Well, everybody, you have a fantastic week. She's Carol. I'm Jay. Now go download this fabulous app today. Ah, have a good one, everybody. Take it easy, everybody. Bye. Bye. Mm-hmm.